0: Welcome to The Day Shift, a podcast focusing on shifting the way we think and talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the medical field. I am Miriam Parshley, a general internist practicing primary care medicine with a geriatric focus in Portland, Oregon. I serve as a regent of the American College of Physicians. I'm a past governor of the Oregon chapter of ACP and a healthcare advocacy enthusiast. I also love commuting and travel by bike and on foot at a human pace.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Alyssa Choi. I am an internal medicine specialist and I also am an infectious disease subspecialist practicing in HIV medicine and management of chronic infectious diseases. I am the immediate past governor of the Massachusetts ACP chapter and I have stepped into a new role as the chair of the American College of Physicians Board of Governors. I love to read, I'm an aspiring writer and I am fiercely passionate about healthcare equity, health policy advocacy, and Asian food. Today we
0: are excited to bring you an episode featuring two amazing guests who have set the standard on providing health care for the houseless in a systematic way at opposite ends of the country, Portland, Oregon, and Boston, Massachusetts. The COVID-19 pandemic shone a spotlight on many areas of healthcare disparity that existed pre-pandemic and which led to significantly increased suffering during the pandemic. One of these areas of disparity is in the care of people experiencing houselessness. To paraphrase a hero of mine, Ida B. Wells, it is time to shine the light of truth on these
1: disparities and to focus on addressing them. So we have two guests for our episode and I have the privilege of introducing the first of our two guests, Dr. Jim O'Connell, currently serves as the president of Boston's Healthcare for the Homeless program. Dr. O'Connell is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. O'Connell received his medical degree from Harvard University in 1982 and completed residency in internal medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. In 1985, he began full-time clinical work with individuals experiencing houselessness as the founding physician of this program. He also established the nation's first medical respite program in 1985. And he has been working with the MGH Laboratory of Computer Science where he has designed and implemented the nation's first computerized medical record for a program serving individuals experiencing houselessness. In addition to many other accolades that Dr. O'Connell has received throughout his illustrious career. He is also a member of the ACP Massachusetts chapter, serving on the governor's council. And he is a master of ACP having received the MACP honorary achievement designation recently. He is also an author and he has written a book, Stories from the Shadows, Reflections of a Street Doctor, which was published in 2015 and has been featured on NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross. We are excited and honored to have you join us, Dr. O'Connell.
2: Thank you very much, Alyssa.
1: And it
0: is my privilege to introduce Dr. Rachel Solotara, who has served as Central City Concerns President and CEO since October 2017, overseeing all aspects of the organization. Central City Concern has 2,000 housing units and provides care to 3,500 individuals each year, as well as operating comprehensive medical care through its clinics. Central City Concern and Dr. Solitaroff have won numerous local, regional, and national awards for their work. Dr. Solitaroff started her Central City Concern Tenure in 2006 as medical director of the Old Town Clinic, which provides primary care to low-income individuals, many facing the impact of homelessness. Rachel oversaw the delivery and quality of care provided by both allopathic and naturopathic primary care clinicians at Old Town Clinic, in addition to supervising the medical practices at the Letty Owens Center and Recuperative Care Programme. Dr. Solotaroff received her undergraduate degree at Brown University, her medical degree from Dartmouth Medical School, and completed her internal med- medicine residency at the University of Virginia. Prior to joining Central City Concern, Dr. Solotaroff served as medical director of the Charlottesville Free Clinic in Charlottesville, Virginia. She then completed an ambulatory care fellowship at the Portland VA Medical Center where her research focused on how disruptions in fundamental components of healthcare access, such as insurance, might affect a chronically ill person's ability to effectively self-manage their chronic illness. Based on this research, she completed her Master's of Clinical Research at Oregon Health and Sciences University, and in partnership with OHSU, Dr. Solotaroff designed and implemented a social medicine curriculum for OHSU internal medicine residents, providing an opportunity for physicians in training to learn from the unique Central City Concern model of healthcare. I know many residents and former residents who did this program, and they all speak very highly of it. Dr. O'Connell and Dr. Solotaroff, is it okay if we use first names we often do on the day shift? Most definitely. Thank you, Marianne. And Dr. O'Connell, I see you nodding your head, so I assume that's okay. We want to begin the next session section of our podcast, which is Be the Change, and hear a little bit from each of you about how you started your journey to doing this work. Dr. O'Connell?
2: In truth, I'm here entirely by accident. I was a senior resident in medicine, uh, looking forward to doing an oncology fellowship back in 1985, when the city of Boston received a four-year grant from the Robert Johnson Foundation to reach out and try to integrate the care of homeless people into the mainstream of Boston's healthcare system. And part of the requirement of the foundation was that there needed to be a, a coalition of stakeholders to work with the mayor to try to come up with how they wanted to be served, And interestingly, the coalition in Boston insisted on having full-time doctors, people who would be there all the time. They did not want any volunteers, um, of which I was a big believer, Um, and they didn't want any students. And I had been a student forever. They wanted full-time doctors just like everybody else would have. And so interestingly, they couldn't find one. And my chief of medicine, a wonderful man named Dr. John Potts, and the uh Vice President of the Hospital at the time, Dr. Tom Durant, called me into the office. I remember this was March of my senior year and made me one of those office you can't refuse um, and all of us know when you get called into the uh chief's office, usually the questions are all rhetorical. And of course, I said yes. But I thought I would do this just for a year. And they delayed my fellowship for a year. And so I decided to take this on as uh, my year of doing good work, of giving back, um, probably solving my late 60s conscience. Um, But I thought it would be really something that would be good to do in the long run. So I started and uh, we ran into um, all sorts of interesting issues that I had no idea about what homeless people were struggling to go through, the kinds of issues that were running through the shelters and on the streets. Um, It was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic involving the poor and homeless community. We had an outbreak of multi-drug resistant tuberculosis in our largest shelter, and I was overwhelmed uh, and working in a wonderful group with a nurse practitioner and a social worker. And our team... um, was working probably a hundred hours a week. And by the end of that first year, I asked uh, Dr. Potts whether he would uh, delay my fellowship for one more year, because it was just too busy and too much going on. So I did delay it for second year. And by the time the second year was over, I was hooked. And uh, this has now been my life for the last 37 or 38 years.
0: Thank you, Jim. How
3: about you, Rachel? I, <clears throat> that's fascinating. I think that idea of um, being an accidental tourist or um being graced with this opportunity without really planning it is my own experience. I um, went uh, to medical school in my late 20s, having done some, actually done kind of an urban Peace Corps experience for about five years um, with the dream of being a rural family practice doctor in Maine. I'd read John McPhee's book, The Heirs of General Practice. And I thought, I wanna do that. I wanna go barter hogs in return for medical care, this fantastical vision. And then life happens. Um, I met my now husband and found myself no longer in Northern New England, but in Portland, Oregon. And kind of a similar situation, this is the power of mentorship. A mentor of mine, she was our section chief um, in the Division of General Internal Medicine, a a physician named Judy Bowen. I was sort of bumbling around in a research fellowship. I'm not a a researcher by nature. And she said, you know, I have this idea this organization that I know in Portland, Central City Concern, is interested in setting up um, an academic partnership to bring um, learners as well as resources from Oregon Health and Science University, OHSU, into, um, into the community setting um, in the, you know, sort of the what was formerly this Skid Row Old Town Clinic or Old Town neighborhood of Portland. So it was sort of a side project in my research career to start this social medicine curriculum um, between OHSU and Central City Concern. And I just never went back. I think something about it, the that feeling of being in, in community that I had actually sought in wanting to be a small town family practice doctor in Maine, I actually felt that sense of community for the very first time being in Old Town um and that idea of a community without resources still showing extraordinary resilience and this power to use their own experience and knowledge to care for themselves um to design the best possible care for themselves that blew me away um and i thought gosh i'm home and so i never it's been my only job since i've been here in portland
1: Jim and Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your personal stories about how you became involved in caring for our patients who experience houselessness. Listening to you both, it does make me realize just how much serendipity can play a role in what ultimately ends up being our future career paths. And we're both very grateful, Marian and I, to have you both realize that this was your calling to take care of patients who are in need, who also are houseless. So speaking of houselessness, I've come to realize that there's several different terminologies that refer to our patients, sometimes referred to as homeless, sometimes referred to as experiencing housing insecurity, and sometimes referred to as having houselessness. I've also become aware that the term homeless has been associated with some stigma, and I would be interested to hear each of your thoughts on the different terms. Jim? I wonder if you could start. I think this
2: is a fascinating issue related to the intractable and sort of complex complex issue of homelessness over time. So if you go back to the early 80s when we first started advocating on behalf of people who were homeless, it was the National Coalition for the Homeless, it was the Healthcare for the Homeless program. So It was thought back then that the homeless, the noun, the homeless, was an acceptable word to use. And much of this included homeless people, as you know. But as the problem went on, it was so clear the stigmatization that came along, the appalling disparities in both health and economics uh, faced by homeless people, and then, of course, the racial issues and classism. And what we've seen is this evolution of trying to find the correct way to talk about people um, and not in any way disparage the experience they're going through or disparage them. And so we've got into what I think is really kind of a pickle. (laughs) Because for example, we have on our board of directors, many homeless people. And over time, we've tried to, we're called the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program after the Robert Johnson healthcare. Um, And so we've thought about how do we get the noun homeless out of our, out of our thing. And our board of our consumer boards said, don't do that because then no one will know who we are. And then among themselves, they have really interesting discussions that have fascinated me. They, for example, um, if you say behavioral health, we, we used to always say mental health and substance use disorders. If you say behavioral health to them, they get annoyed because it sounds like we're impugning their behavior when it's their thoughts or their emotions and it's not their behavior. So we have to be very careful about not saying behavioral health, even though the proper thing to do is say behavioral. The other thing that has been fascinating to me is that the current, um, if you read most things now we will refer to PEH persons experiencing homelessness is kind of the, the, the good way to say it. And a lot of our, um Homeless folks hate that because they feel like we're we're sort of glorifying the experience of homelessness, <laughs> and they don't think of it as that. They think of themselves as homeless. Now that's a group. nobody what we've learned is there's no right thing that assumes everyone so uh, you know we have a lot of people on our board who say we just cut it out and just call us we are homeless and we don't want to be the noun the homeless but we are going through homelessness that's it um and then there's a whole argument about houselessness versus homelessness and they're all i think important arguments to make sure none of us are falling into the trap of you know inadvertently um stigmatizing people or putting them into a A pejorative stance. And I think that's the important thing. What we're learning is this is all about how do we appreciate the dignity and the courage of the people we're serving and who are going through all that. And whatever words we use have to kind of encapsulate that. But I can just share with you over the, and I'm sure Rachel will say the same thing, over these last, you know, 25, 35 years, we've had so many iterations of how to say it so that we would be careful with people and the homeless folks themselves kind of see that as bemusing them.
1: So clearly, this is still evolving actively. Rachel, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this debate over words.
3: I don't know that I can add much more to that really elegant retrospective that Jim provided. I can provide a bit more of some of the concrete definitions that are worth knowing about. It comes along with, um, for instance, HUD, funding for housing, They have a, there's, HUD has a particular definition, let's say, of chronic homelessness. And then there are also definitions around housing insecurity, which might just be helpful just to give a broad background. So the HUD definition of chronic homelessness is quite specific. It means that someone lives in a place not meant for human habitation, or they're in a safe haven or some emergency shelter. And then there's a time course associated with that that they have been living as described, let's call it homeless, for at least 12 months consecutively, or on four separate occasions in the past three years, as long as those three combined occasions equal at least 12 months. So. There are some parameters that are set around this um, which come up when for instance when we'll talk about this later i'm sure when we do our point in time counts we do them every two years here in Multnomah county and how those definitions are created and then what sort of funding flows as a result of those definitions the issue of housing insecurity is also a really interesting one. I don't know that I have a formal definition of that, but it's really important to understand how much rent burden is keeps people in a very liminal space between having a, a roof over their head or or falling into one of the into this definition I just provided for you. So the definition of being rent burdened is that more than 30% of an individual's income goes toward their rent. The definition of being extremely rent burdened is that more than 50% of an individual's or a household's income goes toward rent. And that's a really important definition to know because as you see those statistics on rent burden and housing insecurity go up, you see correlations in how many people are homeless going up in a given community. Um, And I think that's an important again, when we get into the conversation about root causes, that understanding of what the availability is of affordable housing to people in, um, in a community is a key driver of, of how many people are going to be homeless in that community at a given time. Well, thank you so much, Rachel.
0: One of the things I learned being an overnight volunteer host at the family shelter in Portland when my kids were teenagers was there are many reasons why people or families end up a houseless or in housing insecure. And yet I think in the press and in a lot of people's minds, it's simply mental health, substance abuse, or maybe disability. Um, so I'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, what you see as some of the root causes for houselessness?
3: There is this idea that root causes and drivers of houselessness fall into two categories. Ones that are structural, that are really baked into the way we function as a society, which take a lot of active policy and structure and systems change to redress. And the other are drivers of individual experience. And I, I use the term experience as opposed to individual desire, because I think there is such a strong interplay between those structural factors and those individual experiences. So under those structural factors, we talked about already, is the absence of affordable housing. And there's evidence to support all of these. The absence of meaningful wage employment, structural racism and discrimination, and we see that in vastly disproportionate numbers of, um, BIPOC communities who are houseless, and interaction with the criminal justice system, which in and of itself becomes a driver of future houselessness. And then the disinvestment of a strong, and I'm gonna use this term, sorry, Jim, I just learned that about behavioral health, but the disinvestment and sort of the fissuring of of a robust behavioral health system over the last 50 years. And then on the individual sides are the ones that we might hear of more commonly that somebody does have serious mental illness or does have substance use disorder. But there are other ones which we might not think about as much, which are um, having been in the foster care system as a child, trauma, particularly traumatic brain injury, and now age, age over 50 is now an independent risk factor for homelessness. And what's really interesting about this model is, one, it shows how um, complex and dynamic the drivers of houselessness are, that those structural factors really influence those individual factors, but also what the evidence shows is that as those structural factors become more pronounced, as we've seen particularly relative to COVID and other situations around affordable housing and access to care in the last decade or so, and more, as those structural factors become more pronounced, It takes fewer and fewer, if any, of those individual factors to drive somebody into houselessness and often makes it very difficult for, for that to change. So we want as a society to say, oh, it's just, it's, it's up to the person or it's up to their individual experience. They're down on their luck, or they didn't go to enough doctor's appointments. But the evidence doesn't really tell us that the evidence really tells us that it is these structural factors that are driving houselessness in the United States.
0: Thanks, Rachel. Um, Jim,
2: I think Rachel has brilliantly summarized the root causes of homelessness as I understand them, and as, as I think uh, most of us who have been in this work for so long have come to understand it. And uh, and I salute Rachel for for that analysis. It's it's quite extraordinary. From my perspective, I would just add that the. F- longer I spend time taking care of people who are homeless and understand the families and the adults and the the many, many eclectic types of people who end up uh, living on the streets or in shelters, I realize that this is a truly complex societal problem. I used to think that I understood back in 1985 what would be the solution to homelessness because I was seeing what was in front of me. What I did not understand was precisely the uh, issues were precisely the issues that Rachel has pointed out, the really root causes of poverty and racism, um, poor education, um, <clears throat> growing up in blighted neighborhoods, poor and inadequate housing that caused more ill health than health. All of those things, I realize now, contribute to what we have as our modern tragedy of homelessness in America. Uh, and I have come to think of it as... Um, you know, a good way to think of homelessness, I guess, is to hold, it's a prism that we hold up to society and what gets refracted are the weaknesses in each of the main sectors of our society. And I think of health and public health, think of housing, think also though of law and education um, and welfare, all of the weaknesses in those parts of our society Become refracted in today's homelessness population and problem. Uh, So I think we have to do. I think just as Rachel is hinting, we have to look at the root causes as really fundamental to to understanding the problem of homelessness and then learning what we can do to solve it. I used to, for example, think that um, you know we could do good healthcare for people who are homeless, but that doesn't really you know I'm a doctor and. That doesn't end the homelessness. You can try your best to take good care of them. And even as we've learned, getting someone a place to live, a house, an apartment or something, is really fundamentally necessary for solving the problem. But it is not always sufficient to solving the problem because of all the comp- complex factors that people who have been through the foster care system, people suffering from um, delusions and um, all sorts of mental health issues, people are suffering from sub, struggling with substance abuse issues, my, many of which have have emanated from the, the the structural flaws that that they had to live with. Many of those now need to also be addressed once they're in housing. So I'm beginning to think that we all have to rally and understand that. While housing is fundamentally necessary and good health care and good care for um, substance abuse disorders is necessary, we also have to address all the things, the trauma that people have been through and continue to support them once they're in housing. And I think that's probably the frontier that I see now. It is a very complicated problem, and I would urge everyone to listen carefully to what Rachel said.
0: Thank you for that. That image of a prism that we can hold up, the prism of houselessness we can hold up to society and break down the different players is really important. You started talking, Jim, about the social determinants of health as well as medical care and how it impacts those who are living in houselessness. I'm wondering, and and we can think about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs that we all need, like food and shelter, et cetera. Um, My question is... Is it just medical care you provide? Rachel, can I turn that to you?
3: Yeah, thanks, Marianne. I feel so fortunate to have sort of grown up and been mentored in an organization whose mission is to provide comprehensive solutions to ending homelessness, um, to help people who are struggling with what a colleague calls life's biggest problems, to build health, housing, economic, resiliency, and social connectedness. And so central city concern, and I'll say now me, because that's where I have um, learned all these things, really thinks about caring for an individual or even a population, addressing across all those fronts. Um, and sometimes that does come in sequence, but there is often a combination of housing, which can be we have a housing choice model that we think about, which we can talk more about later. But there's no one right type of housing for somebody; um, it really depends on what their own preferences are um, at that time. Um, it involves healthcare, which sometimes might be um, just initial sort of stabilization. Do you just need to be treated for your, you know, tooth abscess today? Um, but then often. Um, will grow into helping with substance use, with mental health, with a physical health condition. There's that economic resiliency piece. So some people, um, whoever wants to work can work. That's the supported employment model. Or some, we can assist people. There's a wonderful model um, that Central City Concern didn't design, but that we have been trained in to help get people onto um, social security and benefits. And then that idea of social connection. Um, that everybody needs that and that can come in the form of peer support, it can come in a housing community, Um, it can come through um, we have a place called the living room where people can sort of drop in there's the clubhouse model. So, um, the sequencing of those kind of depends on where a person is at, at that time. Um, and I don't think that's something that's prescribed. I think that just what's important is if the goal is around, um, again, building health, housing, connectedness, and economic resiliency, you're gonna wanna kind of assemble those things um, at the right time. My, I think you referenced Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And one of my favorite, Things about Maslow's hierarchy of needs is what's at the top, which is about self-actualization. And often for many people, what that means is how am I giving back? You know, as I've sort of been able to put my, my life together, I've reconnected with family, with friends, And what I've seen is that comes in so many different ways. Like Jim mentioned this incredibly robust um, board that he has. So people who are now have been participants in that care are helping to design it. We have a wonderful program at Central City Concern designed by this genius former colleague of mine, a woman named Frida Caesar called Flip the Script. And that's for Black Black and African American men and women exiting incarceration and getting housing and employment but then also they developed a public policy advocacy coalition which has done a lot in criminal justice reform in the state of Oregon so i think part of that and for some people the giving back is i'm going to raise my kids you know or i'm going to be able to go to their you know parent teacher conferences or i'm you know i'm working again or it doesn't you know it, it can take many different forms but i'm so pleased you referenced that maslow's hierarchy of needs because i think that moment of self-actualization is a really beautiful part of what happens in ending homelessness and it as a colleague says often says to me it gets us to avoid that soft bigotry of low expectations you know that fact that the best you can do is sort of be you know maybe not be on the street anymore but not really be achieving your full potential and giving back and and nothing could be less true.
0: Thank you, Rachel. Jim, do you have comments about that or any reflections on um, how we meld medical care with providing uh, help with the social determinants of health?
2: I would um, saluting uh, what folks at Central City Concern have been doing for many years, which is integrating, you know, integrating all of these things. I would also though bring up, there's another tricky part that I would love, you know, to to get a discussion on. Because when I first started, I remember I learned everything from a nurse whose name was Barbara McGinnis. We named our program after her. And she was this fabulous nurse working in the shelter, um, knew every homeless person in Boston at the time. And I started working in the clinic with her. And she basically taught me everything I knew and was not shy about telling me what I was doing wrong. (laughs) And I'll never forget when people would ask Barbara, you know, what do you think we got to do to stop all this? What's going on? And she would turn around and say, will you leave me alone? I'm too busy taking care of people to think about all that. And there's a fundamental struggle that we have every day of the they are very sick people in front of us who have huge needs that they're looking for. At the same time that really the solution is a whole lot more outside of our domain or we need to work with that. But I worry a little bit about in the course of how we focus on this, some of the people who are stuck in that situation of homelessness for for the amount of time it's going to take till we can get them housed and everything you know are dying of cancer and our board continues to remind us the homeless people on our board you know when you're in the hospital and sick that's when you want to see your team that's when you want to see your doctor your nurse or something because that's when you're most scared and the biggest things are going on when i look around i realize as we go more and more to the streets into the shelters we really keep in touch with them when they're really sick and how do we balance that need and you all we all know whenever you get sick you call a specialist you find someone how do we get specialty care to be involved how do we really have good palliative care if you take care of a group of homeless people, as Rachel will underscore with me, they will teach us the weaknesses in our healthcare system long before you realize it anywhere else. And I think that's been the theme of these last years of, wow, we have some major weaknesses in our system, particularly with continuity of care for a very fragmented and um, excluded population.
0: Thank you for this discussion, part one. This is the first of two episodes, and we want to acknowledge and direct our audience to part two which will be released a little bit later Um, and we also want you to continue this discussion online we definitely would love to hear from you we also have additional resources and a transcript and a summary will be available for this on our website get in touch with us through our website through social media and continue the conversation
4: The Day Shift podcast and its guests provide general information and entertainment, but not medical advice. Before making any changes to your medical treatment or execution of your treatment plan, please consult with your doctor or personal medical team. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the Day Shift. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by the Day Shift team are those of each individual and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the Day Shift team and its guests, employers, sponsors, or organizations we are affiliated with. The Day Shift podcast is proudly sponsored by the American College of Physicians, Southern California Region 3 chapter. Our theme music is brought to you by Chris Dingman. Learn more at www.chrisdingman.com.